in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am excited today. Got a special co-host with me here, one of my favorite movie watchers in the world. I would say my favorite movie watcher, Mary Guest. Hi everybody, how you doing? I can't answer you back. I know, but it's okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a politeness that I feel like I need to write to the show and tell us how Do, how you're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. How am I supposed to enter the show? Write to us and let us know. But do you know why else I'm excited? Why? First time guest on the show, and I I, I always like that. And uh, coming to us from the great state of Texas, uh, Tessa Morrison. Tessa, hello. Hey, how's it going? It's going great here. And uh, tell the people at home, you're from Austin. What is it you do? Well, technically, I live in Austin, but I'm actually from West Virginia because I actually know your co-host. That's, that's convenient. It's very convenient. <laughs> what, what a coincidence, yeah. <laughs> Some slight nepotism. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, me and Mary have known each other since what? Was it like late grade school, early middle school? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I am originally from West Virginia. I now live in Austin, Texas, and um, I am a programmer and outreach director for a local sci-fi film festival. Which is extremely movie-related, and it makes you, by default, one of the most qualified people to ever be on the Retro Movie Roundtable, as opposed to us amateurs. Yes! So Legit! Credibility is, like, the, the, the credibility of the show is just going through the roof right now. We gotta ask you a few questions. Just to get you acquainted, to get people a feel for you. What is your favorite movie, Alien? Because today we're going to talk about some movies with some aliens in them. To answer you in, in kind would be Alien, would be the Xenomorph. Because it's probably one of the best designed aliens. And at the time when you had kind of like really, uh, mostly goofy rubber suits for the most part, you had this really amazing kind of architectural design. Like, a, I guess it's one of those bioorganisms, if you will the alien the xenomorph is just just a really solid design still looks good today yeah well except for the very end scene but nobody can really look graceful getting you know pushed out of an airlock spoiler alert yeah that's a good pick that's so iconic so many people reference alien on a regular basis just because it sticks in everyone's mind as being you know terrifying and but awesome at the same time Oh, yeah. What about you? What about, uh, Mary, what's your favorite movie, Alien? My favorite, but you probably already know what I'm going to say. I, I love Yoda. <laughs> I've Aww. always loved Yoda <laughs> since I was a little kid, and I think that his puppetry is amazing, and Frank Oz is amazing. So when I think of, you know, my gold standard of movie Alien, it's definitely him. The sheer joy that comes to her face when she sees uh, Yoda banging on R2-D2 with his cane uh, <laughs> is... Uh, is it's up there mary i take it you've seen that music video uh bad lip syncing uh seagulls stop it now oh yes yes, yes. yeah <laughs> it, 
<laughs> it gets hummed around the house occasionally, even now. So. Oh, yeah. Yes. Tessa, what is your favorite movie uh, for wardrobe? Because I've seen uh, through Facebook that you have very awesome costume or wardrobe skills yourself. You've done some really interesting things. So what movie inspires you most for wardrobe? For wardrobe? Um, I got to say, ooh, it was a really toughie. Um, I'm going to have to go with Fifth Element and uh, a really fun Japanese film called Survive Style 5. And I mean, Fifth Element is just so good. I, I can't remember the name of the uh, the fashion designer that they used in that that did costuming, but I remember when it came out, and my mind was a little bit blown. I liked the a blue alien in it. What's her name? The oh, Pop the singer. Laguna. Yeah, the singer. Her name is like the Pavla Laguna or something like that. Yeah, her costume is great. So it was kind of seamless to be like, well, what part of its costume and what part of it's like her? You know. Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah, that's a really good choice because it's also, you know, technically interesting sort of character and wardrobe and makeup, but it's also sort of bizarre fashion kind of blended together. I love yeah, that movie. Yeah, that's a really good Yeah, it's, it's always really funny whenever you see, like, these really, like, what do people wear in the future? You know, things have tubes or bright colors or, like, what is, like, the color scheme that's in fashion for that season? Chris Tucker's hair. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the I think the color they're going with there really hard was orange, that OSHA orange. Mm-hmm. It was pretty popular. Mary, for wardrobe, what about you? Uh, wardrobe, I, maybe for some of the same kind of reasons, Blade Runner. I nice. find that to be, some of the wardrobe choices there, to be odd, somehow predictive of the future, and at the same time just kind of give you a bizarre sort of feeling. So, yeah, I think... I think they were really spot on, whoever did the wardrobe for that movie. Yeah, I, those are great picks. Uh, if you can't tell, this is a sci-fi fan episode. So, Tessa, if you could go back in the past, get in your DeLorean, and go to any movie premiere, and see people respond to one of your favorite movies, what movie would that be? I wouldn't really go to see how other people responded, but I would definitely go back to any Star Wars movie premiere that had Carrie Fisher when she was still kicking it around because I never got to meet Carrie Fisher. And I think that'd be really rad uh, to go back to one of the Star Wars uh, film premieres. She's awesome. Yeah. Space mom. What about you, Mary? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely, that would be a high choice on my list. But when you put it that way, it might be kind of interesting to go back to back to the future's release if you're in a De- if you're in a delorean actually go back to back to the future and then as your people are coming out of the movie <laughs> your delorean's <laughs> parked outside <laughs> so yeah when you can phrase the question that way ross it kind of changes <laughs> my thought process mm-hmm. and uh tess is there anything you'd like to plug before we get into things um, yeah, I mentioned I'm a programmer and outreach director for a sci-fi film festival. Uh, it's called Otherworlds. Uh, we recently did a rebrand before we're Otherworlds Austin. Now we're Otherworlds. We're going on our sixth year. Um, the festival is the first weekend of December, so it's the 5th through the 9th this year. And badges are currently on sale. Anybody who wants to come. I'm sure if you guys wanted to do a feature on us or something like that, I'm sure I could get you guys a press badge if you ever thought about coming down to Austin. Fun facts. In previous festivals, we did a 20th anniversary screening for Event Horizon and even had a writer, Philip Eisner, in the house. 
We also screened The Black Hole from 1979 with director Gary Nelson. And also we've screened, we just do a lot of, uh, we do some retrospective screenings, but we also bring forth like new and emerging filmmakers and directors and writers. Um, We try to like push more sci-fi out in the world because a lot of film festivals, they have maybe like one or two sci-fi slots and then that's it. But we're basically dedicated to sci-fi and horror. So that's all we do. So there's more slots for that these, these sci-fi films to be able to be seen. Mm, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing event. I'd, I'd love to be able to go sometime. You should. I don't know about this year because uh, turns out, and I hadn't mentioned this yet, we have another guest joining us here on this, or another host here on the show today. Uh, Mary is carrying another person with her now. Yes. So, yes. so, so Jelly Bean is also co-hosting... <laughs> <laughs> the podcast today so, uh, jelly bean is also a sci-fi fan also enjoys tacos and grunge rock music yay <laughs> so today's movie though we're gonna do the adventures of buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension it is comes out in 1984 it has a budget of 12 million dollars unfortunately it only grosses about half of that and that gets 6.2 million dollars Box office figures were low, less than half of the film's production costs were recovered, and some critics were put off by the complicated plot. Uh, the um, box office that year, so it comes in at 101 in the box office. It comes behind Razor's Edge, starring Bill Murray, and it comes uh, just in front of First Born, starring Terry Garr. The number one movie that year, if you're wondering, was Beverly Hills Cop, and IMDb gives this movie a 6.4. Rotten Tomatoes treats it a little nicer. The critics give it a 71%, and the audience doesn't quite get it as much at a 69%. Yes, so the studio made no attempts to sell the film to a mainstream audience and appeared in very few comic books and magazines. Nobody really knew what to do with Buckaroo Banzai, and so they didn't really know how to promote this thing. And also, I should mention before we get going here, it doesn't help that it opened against Star Trek Three. so those science fiction fans were going into the search for Spock, as well as they also went up against Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and they also went up against Ghostbusters. So That's some stiff competition. That's, uh, yeah, exactly. That's not a fun time to put your movie out. Yeah, it got lost in the mix somewhere. That being said, though, Tessa, what are your expectations and background for... Buckaroo Banzai, had you seen this one before? If so, when? And what were your thoughts coming back to it now? Yeah, I saw this, I want to say a little bit after college. When I first moved to Austin, I just saw it at a friend's house one evening. Coming back around seeing it this time, I I wasn't really, I mean, I knew it was a weird movie. It was kind of all over the place. But re-watching it, I, I kind of appreciated it a little bit more and also saw some things that I thought were a bit um, off, which we can probably get into later. I think it holds up all right. It's just such a weird, quirky movie with an amazing cast and soundtrack. And it's just, it's an experience. I, I recommend it. I liked it as well. But uh, I, I, I would agree with you one right off the bat, though. It does demand more than one watching. Mary, what do you think about Buckaroo Banzai and his adventures across the eighth dimension here? Well, I had not seen it before when Tessa suggested it. Uh, I watched a trailer for it just to kind of get a feel for what I was getting into and actually got absolutely no feel for what I was getting into via the trailer, (laughs) which is why I was so compelled to watch it. You know, they had me at uh, Christopher Lloyd and Jeff Goldblum being in the movie and John Lithgow being in the movie and just seeing that we were going to maybe experience some interesting characters. That was enough to, to pull me in. 
So I myself am like Mary, and I had never seen this one before. I had never heard of this one before. And the cover, the poster looks really intriguing. I like if you if you Google the artwork on this one, the poster is really cool. Uh, you get kind of a, a Matt Smith Doctor Who vibe off of it, like with uh, Peter Weller and his bow tie there. And I had hopes of maybe a little bit of a more of a spoof nature to it, going off of those 1960s. Uh, science fiction movies but uh, there's some of that here it's in many ways some of that nostalgia is there but on the other hand it's still much a child of the 80s at the same time and I kind of got it it walks the tightrope between genres is, is the way I'd put it it's not really a comedy and it's not purely a science fiction and it's not quite an action movie and it's not quite a romance either so it's uh, I can see how a studio wouldn't have an easy time marketing this one if Tessa if you had to market this one how would you do it? How how would you market it? Yeah. I mean, like you said, you would say how singular and unique it is. And you would say it's not quite this, 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 and this, but it is an experience to be had. Um, I would, I mean, they had the same problem with The Princess Bride. Like, that was really hard for them to market because they're like, is it is it a romance? Is it action? You know, is it a parody? What's going on here? Um, and I feel like if you kind of lean into that uniqueness instead of just trying to pigeonhole it, you might get more uh, people that would appreciate it to come see it. Also, don't open up against Ghostbusters and uh, Indiana Jones. That too. Yeah. Maybe maybe push it back a week. So in order to fully enjoy a conversation about Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, we've got to uh, get into it and spoil it. So. I just want to caution everybody, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So when we return from this message, we will get into the movie and spoil. So driving instructor Simmons, how did I do? Well, Wendy, it's your 13th time taking the test, making it a baker's dozen. Let's review, shall we? You began your test by hitting nine cones, then leaving the driver's course by passing through a fence. You then signaled left, turned right across three lanes of traffic into oncoming traffic. Is that bad? It's not good, Wendy, because then you exceeded speed limits of 120 miles per hour and the hood of the car spontaneously combusted. You then drove off of a bridge, landing in a lake, and I should note that I didn't deduct you the points because landing in the lake put the fire out. Yay, that's nice. You then miraculously drove the car out of the lake and then provoked a car full of heavily tattooed and armed Korean gang members in a drag race. While you won the race, the Koreans were sore losers and shot the car full of lead, wounding me in my leg. But there is also good news, Wendy. Really? Yes. This time, your driving instructor remained in the vehicle at all times, and you responsibly played the retro movie roundtable the whole time. You gave the show a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, downloaded the show on Stitcher, Google, Spotify, and other various sources, and I also appreciate that you liked the show on Facebook and told all of your friends to listen. You also emailed the show at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Now, due to the Retro Movie Roundtable, you offset your other heinous infractions and passed your driver's exam. Wendy, you're far from a good driver, but you passed your exam and you did well enough to earn yourself a driver's license here in the great state of Florida. Wow, thanks, Retro Movie Roundtable. I couldn't have done it without you. All right, we're back. Here to kick us off and start to spoil this movie. Again, spoilers lying ahead. Tessa, would you give people a refresher for those of us who have not seen Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension since the 1980s? All right, so we have the titular Buckaroo Banzai, played by Peter Weller. It starts out with them prepping a jet car and... Buckaroo Banzai is kind of a Mary Sue. He is a rock star, brain surgeon, philosopher, particle physicist, and samurai. The man does it all. Right now he's prepping a jet car to go through a mountain. 
but he's gonna go through a mountain by going through like creating like a wormhole and like go going through it's, it's kind of like quantum mechanics it's very ant-man-esque in that way um the quantum realm if you will but it's the eighth dimension so he goes through when he comes back there's something attached to the bottom of his car and so then we cut to john lithgow who is playing a scientist who is in a hospital for the criminally insane and so he uses a device that he clamps onto his tongue and i'm not really sure what's going on here it's like a flashback device and so he flashbacks to when he was like not crazy and a normal scientist and he did the same exact experiment that um buckaroo did and like went through a wall but it didn't quite pan out and i guess he's possessed by some aliens from another dimension so it's really weird because how it works is like it seems like he's possessed by this alien and there's tons of aliens later and it's kind of different so anyways and then we cut to buckaroo bonsai and them and they're playing a show in new jersey and they're jamming out they are rocking their faces off and they have two saxophone players one of which has two saxophones for a total of three saxophones because you can't have enough jazz with your rock so in the middle of the show he singles out a crying woman like a jerk like oh is someone not having fun let's point out this person put a spotlight on them such a jerk so uh he asks her what's her name and uh she has probably one of the worst names ever her name is penny pretty it, it was just made me cringe. I was like, God, I forgot that was her name. Um, so in the middle of the show, she tries to commit suicide and she's hauled off. And the paper reads, you know, girl pulls gun at Buckaroo Banzai show. And, you know, she she gets put in prison. People thought that she was trying to kill Buckaroo Banzai. So the crazy doctor in the hospital for the crim- criminally insane, played by John Lithgow, he leaves the hospital and he kills like a a nurse or a docent or something before he leaves. And it's actually actor Jonathan Banks who plays Mike in Breaking Bad. Very young Jonathan Banks. So that was just like a weird random face in there as well. So he leaves. And then we cut back to Booker Banzai bailing Penny out and remarking how much she looks like his dead wife. We find out much later that she's the twin sister of his dead wife. She was adopted. Don't know why this is important. Anyways. And so then we go to a press conference and they talk about his findings of going through this mountain. And there's an, the phone call is interrupted by the president, but really it's some of these evil aliens pretending to be the president so they can shock Buckaroo Banzai because they want to steal some sort of particle accelerator from him because there is currently an alien race war going on between these two warring factions, the red and the black lectoids. So there's a chase scene. Um, we find out that the War of the Worlds radio cast was real, um, and the Electroids are from Planet 10, and then we basically wrap with, like, a showdown where Buckaroo has to shoot some bad guys and keep them from destroying the entire world because they're given, you know, an ultimatum from one of the opposing factions to stop the other ones. It gets pretty wild there at the end. It is a movie with actually a lot going on. It's hard to, like I said, it demands more than one viewing because this movie does not spell things out for you at all. It it definitely kind of throws you in things and just challenges you to figure it out for yourself. I figured it out, but I wasn't, I didn't have much confidence that I was figuring it out right the first time. <laughs> but it, I got to ask though, if you had an oscillation over thruster and you could pass through solid matter, what are you going to do with it, Tessa? 
I would definitely not rob banks. That's for certain. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely not do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, what is a what is a good use of being able to go through solid matter? I mean, I guess we could ask Kitty Pride that question. Uh, I'm not sitting through traffic. I know that. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. Be able to pass through other vehicles, get to work on time better. Right, That's where tunnels a, in Pittsburgh would become totally irrelevant. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, that is a bit of a, I mean, it's a bit mundane, but it's also very practical. Uh, I, I like where your head's at. What, where else would you need to get in as far as, like, walls and whatnot and various things? As an architect, I like to go visiting buildings, but uh, in, po- in a post-9-11 world, there's ever-increasing amounts of security, and they, they uh, don't like you to go into certain places or certainly not take pictures of things. And so I, uh, mm-hmm. I, would, I would selfishly just go into places and take pictures and just because keep on moving through. Big, scary German security guards will get after you russ i've told that story on this podcast before i I feel like there's oh i'll have to listen what episode was that on (laughs) it's hard to tell Uh, that's that's a good question that's a good question you're Uh, getting quizzed on your own podcast that's a i don't remember the exact episode i i was in the munich uh uh olympic velodrome and uh, i was taking pictures of uh uh, the the natatorium there, and I definitely hopped a fence that said like you know like turnstile and stuff like that. Yeah, and went it, through. But you had um, to have a key card to get in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you could get in physically, so I did, and uh, I definitely met a scary security guard who uh, was definitely asking it, for your passport. Yeah, everything sounds worse <laughs> from a German. Uh, like it just sounds a lot more stern, and so they can't help it. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, so uh anyway luckily i just I, I i played dumb and i said oh i didn't know you couldn't go through here he's like well how did you get in i was just like i just walked in i mean it was like i mean i mean i don't speak german so i don't know what that sign says he's like come on like i was like it's like so are you saying you would like me to leave and and so that's how you sneak into things you act like you're supposed to be there like i found that i've accidentally like gotten into shows early because I just looked like I was supposed to be there and then I'm walking around and there's nobody at this venue yet. And it's like the band setting up and I'm, I'm talking to the bartender and I'm like, where is everybody? And then somebody walks up to me as security. I'm like, ma'am, how did you, how'd you get in here? And I was like, I just walked in. So actually it's interesting. Uh, we, I don't know if you can relate to this to having just broken down Buckaroo Banzai at Tessa, but Lithgow, John Lithgow said that, uh, I've tried to explain the storyline to people, and it takes about an hour to an hour and a half. I mean, it's really that complicated, but it's absolutely terrific. Every time I tell people about it, I get so excited, and in the end, I end up just saying, watch Buckaroo Banza. You heard it from me first. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't see where he gets an hour, but maybe like, I don't know, a solid three minutes. <laughs> well there's a lot that he's saying in the movie it's very hard to even understand what he's saying in the movie so maybe there's more to the plot than we even knew <laughs> oh yeah things that were cut oh for sure right for sure. so before we get into things why don't we just do a quick cast rundown too mary do you want to give people a uh, rundown on this awesome cast um sure as tessa mentioned peter weller is our main character buckaroo bonsai uh, John Lithgow plays Lord John Warfarin, as well as Dr. Emilio Lazardo. Yeah, because he's possessed or something strange. Yeah, he actually gets a interesting opportunity to play two characters, so that's kind of cool. When you're possessed, your teeth turn to, like, black. Ugh. Yeah, his teeth are, his teeth are pretty gnarly. <laughs> yeah. 
Ellen Barkin plays Penny Pretty. Uh, I do yeah. cringe at that name. <laughs> when you say Penny, I always think of Inspector Gadget's uh, daughter. Oh, I, I... It's his niece. Yeah, oh, 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 you're right. It is his yeah. niece, yeah. Now, I can't help but think of uh, Penny. Oh. Penny. Yeah. Penny. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and her haircut's about exactly the same now, so I was kind of wondering about that. Is it a little tip of the hat to this character? Jeff Goldblum plays a character called New Jersey. Dr. Sydney. I have such a red cowboy suit fetish, but only if Jeff Goldblum is wearing it now. <laughs> Pittsburgh's own. I would Jeff like Goldblum. for someone to explain to me the significance of this uh, cowboy costume because I still don't get it. <laughs> I think it's just his fashion choice. I think that's just his jams. Like when he's not helping Jeff Goldblum's character, New Jersey, his, his name is Sydney. He's a doctor, and in one of the scenes, he is helping uh, Buckaroo uh, perform uh, neurosurgery on someone. And Buckaroo just happenstance says, Hey, do you want to join my band? But Sydney didn't know that meant that he was also joining Buckaroo's band of uh, basically freedom fighters or superheroes. I don't know what you'd want to call them. Some sort of syndicate syndicate of good I don't oh know. he thought he was only talking about the rock band yeah gotcha. yeah he didn't know he, he didn't know he was going to be helping fight evil he was pretty good at it he's pretty good at it yeah christopher lloyd plays john big booty <laughs> big booty yeah so so french his selection of name there big booty uh lewis smith plays perfect tommy he's the guy who's usually at buckaroo's right hand Billy Idol haircut. Yeah, Billy yeah. Idol. Because he's perfect. <laughs> Lewis, that was Lewis Smith. Uh, Rosalind Cash plays John Emdell. She is the woman in the hologram message. I like how everybody's name is John in this movie. Yeah, all the lectoids, their names are all John. <laughs> all their first names are John. Doesn't get confusing at all. Even the women. <laughs> I love it. Yep. <laughs> uh, Robert Ito plays Professor Hitaka. He's the scientist who you see both with John Lithgow in the flashbacks and with Buckaroo in present day. Pepe Cerna plays mm. Reno, Nevada. Donald Lacey plays President Widmark. But yeah, he's the he's got he's the president with major back problems. Yeah. Yes. Matt Clark is the Secretary of Defense. Clancy Brown is Rawhide, uh, which he's- some of you may recognized from movies like Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and uh, he's a character in The Flash. I'm pretty sure he does a lot of voice acting, too. I think he did some voices for the um, Batman animated series, I think. That makes sense. He has a very distinct voice. He's a giant man, too. Like, he's really tall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. William Trailer plays General Catbird. Is that (laughs) real? (laughs) Your confidence on that is amazing. It's like, are there, like, typos in this? No. <laughs> it's like there have to be. Uh, Carl Lumley is John Parker. Uh, Vincent Escalvini is John O'Connor. Dan Hedea is John Gomez. Lots of Johns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like half the cast. Uh, Marie Costello plays Senator Cunningham. Bill Henderson plays Casper Lindley. And uh, Damon Haynes plays Scooter Lindley. Who's the little boy uh, who yeah. picks up the radio call as well as wields an automatic rifle, which I love. Oh, he's great. <laughs> oh my god, that kid is pretty amazing. It's so funny. This movie does this thing a lot where they will have someone talking who is off screen and not a main character. They did at least 
like four or five times I noticed when they're in the prison getting Penny there was somebody off screen like a girl in one of the cells talking to like perfect Tommy she's like oh you're perfect Tommy and then like another scene where just just people just talking off screen oh and, you're like, right there another, I can think of another instance where Buckaroo is stealing the motorcycle somebody goes it's Buckaroo Banzai <laughs> Like, yeah, where is that voice coming from? <laughs> we really want to like lean into the fact that these characters are famous. Well, he's absolutely internationally beloved. It seems like not just for being a rock star, but just being a man of many trades. I was wondering in real life, who's the most likable person that like, whether it be a musician or an actor, what like who is Buckaroo Banzai? Like, I mean, like, if is it like just Tom Hanks if you dialed him up times ten? Like, is it like if you melted Dave Grohl and Tom Hanks together? Is that Buckaroo Banzai? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I'd want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, I feel like uh, Robert Downey Jr. would be good. Yep. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. and if he was, uh, I mean, he does more than just acts, but. I feel like he needs to be a neurosurgeon, he needs to be able to be an astronaut, you know, and then we would basically have a real life buckaroo. It's just a renaissance man, a guy with uh, many hats, and many feathers in all of those hats. Yeah, I wonder if there's anybody out there whose role model is Buckaroo Banzai, who's been to medical school, who's <laughs> a trained musician, like, <laughs> tries to do it all. My dad said that he knew somebody who uh, never wanted to pay a student loans off that he went to school with, and so he went to dental school. And uh, so the guy he was in dental school with uh, then went and got a medical degree, and then went and got a law degree. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, the guy's got a ton of mm-hmm. degrees. Mm-hmm. And eventually, he finally stopped going to school and started working. I don't remember which project or which job he ended up taking, but uh, man, that's a that's some heck of a student loans because you don't have to start paying them back until you're done. But uh, being a professional student, uh, did, did it didn't work out? Didn't carry him all the way through death. Yeah, I would like to know the bill he racked up before he quit. Jeez. Wow. Maybe he's just like, if I just stay in school until I die, I won't have to pay them back. And unlike the like. Uh, I guess popular narrative now like no like school in 1970 something did not cost like two dollars and fifty cents so yeah <laughs> anyway the casting actually wanted a big name actor for the role of Buckaroo Banzai and Peter Weller uh, instead of him they were looking at maybe Tom Hanks or Michael Keaton they were pressuring for them but they liked Peter Weller because of his uh, he done he did a movie called uh, Shoot the Moon and the writer sorry director W.D. Richter liked him and just thought he could have this heroic degree but also still get grease on his face and thought he was an intelligent person and liked it so i don't know if uh, did you think peter will did it did it all for you tessa but did it all for me yeah like does does is he the is he the ultimate i don't know how you want to say it, the swiss army knife the guy who can do everything well i i honestly think the swiss army knife man is uh, gary oldman but that's just me i mean peter weller did it did all right i mean given that he wasn't quite sure about the tone that this movie was going to have and even now we're not quite sure of the tone this movie has so i feel like he did it as much uh justice as as he could muster i do think that now that russell's pointed it out michael keaton has a quirkiness about him that i think would have mm-hmm. been fun in this role i think that's an interesting idea i think you yeah I think maybe we get a more eccentric buckaroo bonsai which i might like Dig it. Um, yeah, other films directed by W.D. Uh, Richter. Uh, we have uh, Big Trouble in Little China and also uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. So he's got some sci-fi and some weird action chops. Absolutely. 
So they did want to go with an unknown actor. The studio wanted an unknown actor for Dr. Emilio Lazaro, uh, but Mac McCrouch, who had written the role, and he's the writer, and he felt like John Lithgow was his man. And like Weller, Lithgow, as Tessa mentioned, Lithgow, uh, sorry, Weller didn't know what he was getting into. Lithgow also was really unsure about the character. Richter convinced him by claiming that it's a real feast for an actor who, it's a wonderful Jekyll and Hyde character. And Lithgow said, uh, he was told in an interview later that, I've had roles where I came very close to going over the top. And in Twilight Zone, I went, almost went over the top several times. But in this role, I go completely over the top. And it makes the Twilight Zone seem like a model of restraint. Yeah. I was about to say, how is it Jacqueline Hyde? The only thing, like, when he was normal was in his flashback was when he was normal. And then everything after that is just Hyde. You're right. It's all Hyde. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he. Maybe there were parts written in there for more flashback. But uh, you're right. Good point. It's all. It's all. It's all wild and crazy. No, no. I kind of yeah. got the feeling that sometimes he goes back and forth between the John character and the Emilio character, just in his present day. So it's almost, yeah. almost like he's got three things going on. He's got the guy he used to be, and then he's got this sort of duality. I guess it's not the last time he'll making play his it. hair frizz up and his teeth turn green. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the last time he'll play an alien in a human body either because third rock from the sun yep richter had actually met jeff goldblum on the invasion of body uh invasion of the body snatchers as tessa just mentioned ah. and he liked him and wanted him to be in this movie as well and so that's how the character of new jersey came to be so previous relationships come to fruition there and as i mentioned earlier uh this is pittsburgh's very own jeff goldblum's it's chaos <laughs> <laughs> Mary, do you want to tell people about John Lithgow's dialect coach, maybe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we we watched a, a little thing where John Lithgow was being interviewed, so he was talking about this, and it actually was, he credited his tailor, who tailored uh, many of his costumes over the years, who actually had this Italian accent, and actually credited the guy as being his <laughs> voice work coach, whereas... He had him read the whole movie. What? Yeah, he he recorded, he gave him the script and had him read every line that he would have. Oof. And so that he could refer back to it to see how this Italian character <laughs> that he liked so much in real life would do it. And so he would refer back to this. Yeah, he got a huge kick over. People would call him years later and ask uh, if they can have an appointment with his voice coach. <laughs> wow. So it's just kind of amazing how somebody in his normal life ended up affecting the movie so much. You know what? That's like back-to-back weeks in some ways. But like uh, we just talked about how Tom Hanks watched a, he the, the young child that they had played, the younger version of him in Big, did the parts. And they, like, they would actually film the scene with the young child in there. And then Tom Hanks would watch and see how actually someone young would do it. And then he yeah. would watch that and then do it himself or take his own interpretation off of that. So it's kind of funny, back-to-back huh. -back weeks. Uh, again, Tom Hanks coming full circle. We brought him up earlier. But uh, Lithgow's kind of doing the same thing. How does this very Italian guy actually do this? So that's kind of uh, an interesting cheat tactic if you're looking to make it in the acting world. Find the biggest, most uh, audacity character you can find and then mimic them. So, Tessa, what do you think about the direction of this movie, like in the approach and the style and the look? Well, it, I mean, it varies. In the beginning, you have some really nice establishing shots of um, the valley, uh, the canyon where they're going to do the experiment with the jet car. And then towards the end, you know, it kind of devolves a bit more into space action sequences. There was some editing that was a little 
it could have been a little cleaner going from interiors to exteriors of spaceships. That's always kind of tricky to like get that to really flow and feel like it's, you know, the same place and that's the environment that they're in. So some of that was a little, a little rocky, but I feel like overall, like the direction of the thing was, was all right. I mean, even though, as we discussed, it's tonally a bit all over the place, but it definitely started out fairly sci-fi and then degraded more action-y. Do you think Richter was able to sort through Mac Rauch's wild ideas? Because like everything that I was reading about Mac Rauch as a writer, he would constantly start and put it down, put it in a drawer, start over, never getting to an end, and everything was going, and he was building up all of these different adventures. and this, So Buckaroo uh, Bandy, which is actually what it was, his name was uh, in the screenplay and as he was writing it, had all of this content. There's a mountain load of content, and... Uh, Richter had a hard time putting it together. And uh, does that show at all? Yeah, I mean, it definitely shows how just it, if I don't know, frenetic it is. If that's the right word I'm using here. But I mean, they ended up turning this stuff into comic books, right? Or was it a comic before? I forget if there was some comics before and then they made a movie or if they used the scripts and then turned those into comics to help try and like market the film. I think the comics come after the movie. OK, yeah. I wasn't really sure. I knew there were comic books, but I couldn't, I forgot if it was like a chicken egg situation. But yeah, I mean, even at the end of the movie, all the way at the end of the credits, it, it has like, stay tuned because there'll be more Buckaroo Bonsai, counting chickens before they're hatched. Buckaroo Bonsai versus the Crime League. And then that never ended up happening um, in any film sense. So obviously it didn't didn't quite go over as well as they had hoped yeah i think that you know after i realized that at the end that they're clearly expecting to do another movie i think yeah. some of the things that felt like they weren't wrapped up or they weren't clean or or understood in this movie are nuggets they were leaving to set up the next movie um so i kind of felt that a couple of times it's like you know when something was unresolved it's kind of like well they were leaving it for the next movie maybe yeah i feel like certain styles and of writing and some things are just maybe more lends themselves more to say like comic books and maybe this kind of lends itself more to that obviously and then if we look at like now when they try people try and turn comic books into movies like sometimes it's it works really well and then sometimes not so much depending on like the type of comic book it is or graphic novel if you will it's it suffers from that sort of problem i compared it to captain america civil war where they were trying to put everything into one movie and it just mm -hmm. it just simply didn't work um mm -hmm. i think this maybe suffers from that to a s small degree where they had so many ideas they couldn't do them all at once yeah i was i had a, like a comparison there for a second in my head and then i just lost it but that's yeah that's a good um that's a good example just whenever something's just trying to do too much or i mean like god how many times have they tried to make a live action the tick like tv show they keep trying they keep trying they've done it what three times now oh there's i i count two but maybe it's three i don't know yeah it's been a few times they've tried to make the tick in a live action and i'm just almost to the point where like guys just let it be some things are just meant to be animated or meant to be a comic or just you know it's like admirable try i suppose spoon hey no not the face not the face um <laughs> One thing I think that Richter, W.D. Richter struggles with is to find the tenor of this. I, I think there's a need to pick a side a little more. I think this movie wants to be 
a little more spoofing of mm-hmm. early 1960s science fiction. I think the costume work of the Lectoids look really awesome. I think some of the scenes look good, but I think that they should have made played with the cardboard nature of early science fiction movies, uh, kind of steering into that Mystery Science 3000 movie, maybe save some money and embrace the campy nature of it and use it to your humor facts. So I'm not... I'm not saying we need to go full-blown airplane with this, mm-hmm. but I, I am thinking that this could take a step towards Spaceballs. Yeah, I definitely could see that. So Richter, as I mentioned, uh, his wife read a review of Dirty Pictures from the Prom, which is a debut novel from er- Earl McRoush. Richter's wife hands it to him. He loved the book, and uh, he offered Roush an invitation to come out to Los Angeles. And it wasn't until Richter became a successful screenwriter with other, involved with other movies that then McRoush reached out to him. And the two got to talking, and that's when McRoush pitched the character of Buckaroo Bandy. That's when Richter liked it and gave him $1,500 to develop it and to write it. And so uh, he came up with a 30-page treatment entitled Find the Jet Star, uh, said the president, a Buckaroo Banzai thriller. As I mentioned, it was just scattered writings, and things never really took shape and then uh, years passed because there's a writer's strike that delay things and Richter talks to the producers about filming one of the screenplays and out of that meeting Canton and Richter form their production company so there's a whole other production company that comes out of this and this was going to be the first movie for that production company and it's a rough start as I mentioned this movie didn't quite recoup but half of its money and so um, they then go with a 60 page treatment entitled uh, Lepers from Saturn a Buckaroo Banzai story, and then uh, the lepers became lizards, which then became lectoids, and then they also, instead of being from Saturn, became from Planet 10. And you can just start to see, as you start to read the creation of this movie, all of the... Uh, they're all over the place. They're just all over the place. Yeah. It's just so weird that they kind of, like, bopped around with... I didn't know they the characters were originally supposed to be, one, lepers, and then became lizards, and then lectroids. Also, it's really weird that Lectroids are two different races of Lectroids, and the red ones, when they look human, are white dudes, and the black ones are Jamaican actors. It's just kind of weird. There's this whole weird race angle to it that I didn't remember watching it the first time around, that rewatching it made me slightly uncomfortable. I was just like, Yeah, I found that to be really weird, too, and... At the same time as pointing out their obvious racial differences, they're all named John anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost would have expected that to be the defining factor. Like maybe the maybe the bad guys are all John and, and maybe <laughs> maybe the good guys are all I don't know, Sam. Bob. I don't know. Yeah, like, Bob, Bob, Sam. Like, like, why did you know, why did they have to make it a, a racial thing? It doesn't seem to add to the plot in any way. No. And then just it's weird that they're human forms. The races are also different. And like, well, why do we really need to make that like differentiation there? Like kind of deal. That's a word. <laughs> I also found that uh, I was right. That was not a good place to start your movie because Sherwood Studios, the production studio that was started this up, went bankrupt after this one. So uh, oh. we did not get uh, Buckaroo Banzai uh, versus the World Crime League, as you mentioned. That was planned. Uh, uh-huh. and, and they plan to do several of these. And it's funny, I watched a, kind of a Comic-Con kind of a panel where Lithgow's talking about this movie, and uh, 
he's he said it just during the making it he was so optimistic for it he thought that this was gonna Aww. be he thought that i really thought we were making Aww. the next star wars movie i was so excited for it and i really You're thought sweet we baby <laughs> yeah yeah he's so endearing when he talks about it like he loves it still yes Aww. yeah i mean there's there's a lot to enjoy i i really would have been curious to see uh buckaroo bonsai versus the world crime league i'd really hope that the world crime league would be like the antithesis of the uh, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, so they would have like imperfect Tommy, and instead of New Jersey, New Mexico, and <laughs> you know things like that. You know, Reno, you'd have Vegas, or I don't know, whatever. Uh, being the different opposing uh, bad guy, you know, bizarro versions of the Hong Kong Cavaliers would be fun. We got a little bit of that, and so this was edited out in the original script. Buckaroo Bonds, I was supposed to have an arch enemy named Hanui Zan, and it's not in the movie, and all mentionings of it have been edited out. I'm oh, sorry. Hanoi? Yeah. Is it supposed to be Hanoi? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, uh, I, thank you for... Uh, anyway, it's Hanoi Zahn. Okay. And it's supposed to be his rival, and he is the head of the World Crime League. And mm-hmm. in theory, he, uh, according to the writings of Mac Roush, he was the one who killed Buckaroo Banzai's parents, <gasps> as yes. well as his his original wife, Peggy. So... Uh, this is a bad dude, and they were setting that up in the next movie, but in the end, they decided to cut all that out and just save it for the next movie. So this is what you're describing right now, uh, Hanoi Zan. Yeah. That is where you were headed with this in the next movie. I was just riffing and guessing. I actually didn't know that. Um, but I just feel like as far as the kind of comic booky nature of this, that that's what that would be. So, as, as I mentioned, there's a lot of content on this one. I have wondered, as I was watching this one, it seems kind of ripe for a remake or a TV series or something like that. Someone could pick this up, and again, if they could find the humor in it, this could be a hit still. Yeah. And I feel like some of that humor would be well-placed in his team. I felt like some of them, like, like they, they had interesting names, they've got personalities set up, but they don't really do a whole lot in terms of adding to the movie if some of those characters could have more personality and bring some humor in i i think that would really do a lot to yeah you yeah. know make this movie feel more w- well-rounded yeah yeah i i kind of wanted to see more of the team they spent all this time making this team but didn't do a whole lot with them yeah like what's rico's deal what, why is perfect tommy so perfect like <laughs> have you seen him no i'm kidding <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, you, you told me that they had a, a deleted scene with, uh, Bonsai's mom and, uh, and that was kind of interesting who that was played by. It was Jamie Lee Curtis as Bonsai's mom, which was pretty rad, but yeah, I, it's so weird all the things they chose to cut and there's a lot of things that they, they just did a lot of setup that we see now, oh, they thought they were going to make a second movie. So all these things they kind of set up that they didn't do anything with, obviously they were going to do with the second movie, you know, Peggy, Peggy being dead, you know, you're like, Oh, we're going to figure out what happened with his wife. Oh, I guess it doesn't matter. Moving on, you know, kind of thing. But here's this other chick that looks just like her. So. Absolutely. I'm also surprised how fast uh, she gets over it too. When she figures out what's going on, he's like, well, you look like my dead wife and you're, you're her twin. She's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I, now all this makes sense. She's just cool also, with that. <laughs> wasn't her sister like a princess? Didn't he say she was like a, Queen of the Netherlands? Yeah, Queen of the Netherlands. Like, so technically, she just found out. Well, a, she knew she was adopted, but b, she has a sister, a twin sister, and and 
see, thirdly, that she is royalty. Like, I feel like that's a bit of a bomb to drop. And she's like, whatever. Yeah, her depression seems to wipe away very quickly upon finding that out. It's like, oh, I get to hang out with Buckaroo Bonsai. Oh, everything's okay now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, her problem was that she was on her last dime and she was out on the street, nowhere to stay. And so, like, she she ended up having a place to stay with the Hong Kong Cavaliers. So her housing situation was solved. I did like the part where she goes to shoot herself and commit suicide in the mid-bar, but the waitress bumps into her arm and that, that knocks her arm off. And, and also the price tag was still on the gun. <laughs> <laughs> if you look close, there was a price tag hanging from it. That seems fitting for her. <laughs> Love those earrings. What it was, it giant hearts with buttons pushed on them? It was kind of, yeah, 80s fashion, which is so bizarre, but that was... <laughs> stuck out to me sorry that was weird no and she had like a barbie pink like 1920s flapper dress like it was a flapper dress with all the little tinsel but it was bright pink when is this movie supposed to be set either of you know when like i I had a hard time pinning down when is this doesn't matter because no matter where you are there you are (laughs) 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 i wasn't sure if this was like the 1980s in a different like this is just the coolest guy in present day, or is this a different world present day? It's or? the 1980s from the seventh dimension, Russ. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not 1980s from our dimension. I needed to be I, anchored to a time. I will take that hand wave explanation. <laughs> Funny that you're mentioning this scene where the Hong Kong Cavaliers are playing in the concert and everything like that. This is one of the scenes that is actually the director of photography in the film is Jordan Cornwealth. And he is the one who did Blade Runner from 1982, as Mary mentioned earlier, uh, Blade Runner. And filmmakers specifically wanted their film to be rich in color and texture. This is something that Cronwealth is known for in Blade Runner. And several weeks into filming, though, David Begelman replaced Cronwealth with Fred Kuhnkamp against the wishes of the crew and against the wishes of director Richter. And the orders were given to make this more campy, flat, and take the visual appearance down. And the filmmakers never originally intended this and so some of those scenes that you see shot by jordan cornwell is still in there and Mm -hmm. uh they remain in the final cut scene which the nightclub scene and most Mm -hmm. notably in the music scene of wherever you go there you are is all part of this stuff so there's a there is a visual contrast uh and you can see particularly later in the climax of the movie some of these scenes are dingy muddy rusty brown. Uh, yeah i'm wondering if it, in sort of the action climaxes i'm wondering if some of those scenes were shot by him as well because mm-hmm. it, it kind of switched back to that dark gritty um high contrast you know being in the shadows but having like beams of light coming in there was some of that and that felt very blade run it may or may not have been i mean sometimes just darkening an area is just their way of like let's not make all the flaws and these props and things super obvious that's sometimes true that's too. yeah something <laughs> that gets leaned into so the lighting might not be the best sort of tell especially in like a sci-fi or anything with special effects that, that's who- true they may just have been hiding the surroundings i am a little unclear on this too i see it on the map that they're looking at new jersey for where the aliens would have hit in grove city Mm-hmm. Is this movie set in New Jersey? Because they're driving in the desert in with their rocket car in the beginning. We have no setting either, right? So no time and no location. We know it's the United States because like they've got like a president and a secretary of defense and et cetera. But we can't tell when this is, can we? 
or sorry, where this is. I, I forget if they had time stamps on it, but it does obviously vary from, I think, yeah, New Jersey and somewhere. I mean, they're, they're a band on tour, so I'm assuming that the locations will be subject to changing. The actual place where the criminally insane hospital was that you mentioned uh, is in, I guess, Trenton, uh, in theory. Uh, the the atmosphere of this, uh, Mary was pointing out that it seemed Tim Burton-esque to her, but I, I actually am questioning, could we go weirder here? Uh, this is, after all, where uh, the great Dr. Lizardo is. Yeah, I didn't know that he was in a mental institute or a hospital for the criminally insane it took me a hot minute to realize like that's what that setting was until we were in the hallway and he was talking to one of the guards i guess and it's just like they didn't even have like that guard room that they usually have you know behind the glass they just had like a desk in the hallway and there was like maybe three or four people acting weird and kind of crazy in the background i'm like oh he's in a mental hospital okay and that was kind of what placed it for me. Other than that, it just looked like he had, like, uh, a room set up in a large warehouse. Yeah. Uh, he had someone come and say, I'm taking your TV away. But there was... So I knew he was being oh, watched. But I, 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 I put it together when the... the Orderly? Orderly, or whatever he was, uh, employee there, gave him a care package from the Yo-Yo Corporation. What was the oh, name yeah. of the... Yeah, Yo-Yo Dine. Yo-Yo Dine, yeah. So when when he was getting a care package, I was like, oh yeah, he's a patient. But it kind of has this. It's it's a complete wreck. I guess they just don't want to deal with him, so they shove him in a you know an, an abandoned area of the hospital by himself. It, complete wreck. He's got all this weird electronic stuff around, and it the colors in it are very pale pink, pale green, and it kind of reminded me of. Uh, the scene in 1989 Batman when Catwoman become like scenes in her apartment that's just disgustingly pink and oh yeah um, she's becoming unhinged and she's trashing the place Saturated. it kind of kind of made me think of that huh. scene a little bit where the visual of the room kind of has this unhinged feeling I didn't get that on my own but that's interesting yeah, so maybe that. where yeah. I'm pulling the Tim Burton reference in okay and yeah. I just feel like Lithgow himself had to have come out of Tim Burton's brain. I mean, obviously he didn't, but it seems like the kind of character that would have been created by somebody as, as eccentric as Tim Burton to to create that sort of um, wacky alien Italian <laughs> character. <laughs> so Tessa, what do you think about the costume work on the Lectroids? Not necessarily the fact that they're played by white versus black people per se, but the actual makeup work on the Electroids, I I loved it. Yeah, I mean the Electroids, they they had some pretty decent latex masks, and as far as like the mouth movement and stuff, it was all right. Um, they all had gloves on their hands. Some of them had full hand gloves. I noticed one of them had like cloth on like the palms, and then the fingertips were like the latex fingertips. It was just kind of um. They're all um, a little bit different. And then uh, I guess the one thing with the Electroids masks, the ear holes weren't really quite great on those. But, like, the eyes and mouth movement were pretty decent. Um, As far as the costuming goes, John Parker, he was the main black Electroid. Uh, he was also a, a Jamaican, appeared when he was human, a Jamaican gentleman, who was sporting a really sweet silver jacket, which someone off-screen, one of those many off-screen people piping in just to say their two cents, nice jacket! 
Um, <laughs> I miss that. Yeah. yeah. That is a first... great jacket. <laughs> it, was, it was a dope jacket. I would, I'd wear that jacket. I mean, yeah, the, the costume is all right. I mean, it was no fifth element, in my opinion, but it, it served, for sure. It was all very 80s. And the red electrodes kind of have, as uh, Michael Rivera, the uh, production designer, he consulted with, uh, he looked at the Russian history to give them a baggy suit Moscow bureaucrat look. So that's the look of uh, Peter Chevalier, or sorry, Vincent Chevalier and uh, Christopher Lloyd's, uh, you know, suits that are drab. Yeah, I feel like in the case of those two actors in particular, you they're, they're, some of their facial features are kind of reflected in the ma- the design of their mask. Like, I can mm-hmm. kind of tell which one is which just by looking at them. Because I, I feel like they kind of pulled some inspiration from, like, the shape of Christopher Lloyd's face or Vincent Scavelli's face and kind of worked it into the design of the mask. So it was a little bit personalized. They were different. Yeah, yeah I felt like, um, yeah, the other the other guy I couldn't really necessarily recognize, but I felt like they spent more time on those two. Each makeup from those electrodes had, each of the actors had a unique face cast taken yeah and so it says that they had 12 separate latex pieces for their costume so which doesn't seem like as many as it would take but still um that's uh, an interesting tidbit there but what about the buckaroo bonsai's cavaliers uh tessa do you like the look of his gang or uh do you want to do something different oh no i love the look of his gang it, they're amazing i mean you got you got perfect Tommy rocking like probably what was he wearing like a white denim jacket with a small scarf around his neck, no undershirt, um, <laughs> and then probably white pants. And then you got uh, Rawhide was kind of Rawhide was probably the more like chill, like you know t-shirt. Is he more like t-shirt and jeans? If I remember, yeah, doesn't he have like a flannel on at some point, yeah, just like yeah, tucked yeah. in? I get mechanic yeah, off of him of, to some degree. Yeah, like, I, he, he your brought, average he, guy. He, he brought the mechanic side of it. There's a lot of ties. There's a lot of uh, popped collars. There's so a is lot it of... Reno who has two belts? One of them has yeah. two belts. Yeah, it's a yellow and a red belt, I want to say. Yeah. yeah. Is two belts it's... a good idea? Should I do this? If you really don't want your pants to fall down, I mean, you can't be too careful. <laughs> On that note, I'm not sure how suspenders ever lost uh, favor because they actually keep your pants from falling down way better than belts. But belts worn yeah. out, so... Russell alluded to it earlier, but I felt like at the very end, uh, when they're kind of doing their weird walk to music at the end, uh, Buckaroo's outfit must have inspired Matt Smith's Doctor Who costume. Oh, totally. (laughs) Even the feathered hair. Such a Matt Smith vibe off of that that scene. In a good way. I I like that connection. If, in fact, that's really a thing. I would, I would probably say, yeah. I mean, I the fashion up from the like the Hong Kong Cavaliers. I mean, yeah, they're they're superheroes in their own right, but they're in a band, so they all kind of got to have like one's the bad boy, one's like the no nonsense, one's the science, you know, like they they all kind of have their own personalities, and then they have crazy aesthetics to go with it. Um, that that whole ending, uh, entourage like music sequence at the end where they're all walking is just great and does highlight a lot of their uh, costuming i want to know where the saxophone guy that had the white boy fro was because like he needs to be in the crew full time like but it's not like a normal fro it's like a mullet fro exactly it's another (laughs) i think it's called a perm it's big (laughs) 
I don't remember him. Was he the guy that was playing two saxophones at one point or the guy that only had one? If you go to the scene where Buckaroo Banzai is playing his lively song on stage. Uh, I don't remember the saxophones because I was too distracted by the hair. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say, <laughs> there, there, were, there were two saxophone players there and he's definitely one of the two saxophone players and I can't okay. not look at anybody else but this guy. It's like occasionally like when you're watching like Saturday Night Live, like the music guest will be there and they have their backup band with them and occasionally there's just somebody in the backup band who's not even in the regular band per se, but like it'll be a backup backup singer or something like that and there's something wildly distinct about them and you just can't stop focusing on them this was one they of those they do it on purpose yeah they do it on purpose this is one of those <laughs> where it's just like what is with that guy's hat or like what is with that man that guy's wearing very strange boots in this case it was that saxophone player is like man that is that's a bold hair choice there it makes me think of uh, the beginning uh, scene in Lost Boys. You know, everybody remembers that saxophone player in the beginning scene on Lost Boys. Saxophone players must like to get that extra little attention. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, another good piece of wardrobe. What about those bubble wrap glasses? Do you want a pair of those? Oh God, um, those are their their bubble wrap. I guess they're supposed to be three-dimensional holographic viewing glasses that they just like mocked up on the fly with what they had laying around. I really am like, damn, That's the way I that took is. That. They're like, oh, we we didn't get the uh, glasses done in time. Here's some bubble wrap. I loved it. <laughs> oh my god, it was so janky. It was so janky and silly. And and that's one of those you know moments where you're like yes they, if we redid this movie lean into it more like space balls 100 percent. exactly I, I want i want more moments of those uh you know bubble wrap goggles that they have i, I definitely that, that was one of my favorite props i was like i want more of this <laughs> <laughs> i they should have given the president some oh they did they they may have yeah yeah, they did. They did have the president wear it. Okay. What's with that apparatus that the president's on too? Is that a real thing where like you get like put on a hamster wheel and you get tilted all around? All over well, the place? but it's like a traction machine. But an attraction machine only works if you turn yourself upside down. So this is a real thing. Yeah. Okay. But you have to. It doesn't work horizontally. You have to for your spine to get decompressed. You have to be hanging upside down. Well, they should have filmed it that way. That would be funny. So it's like in the position it would be in if you were getting into the machine. His face would be so red. I don't know. I'd like the to whole thing him, was weird. I'd like to have him upside down more so that uh, you know people hand him the paper and he's like, this this paper makes no sense at all. And it's like it's upside down, sir. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Play with it. Play. I'd like to play with that a little bit. Yeah, more. if he if he's actually hanging upside down in it like he's supposed to. Yeah, that would have been great. Special effects, though, Tessa. How's the movie magic in Buckaroo Banzai? So there's some at the end battle. There, I want to say there's probably some green screening in the windows behind them for some of that. It's not. Some of it's good. Some of it's so-so. Some of it's just bad. But, you know, maybe at the time it was a little bit better. I, but time definitely hasn't been kind to some of the special effects, for sure. The beginning when he goes through the eighth dimension, he comes back with a weird pod attached to his car. That looked pretty good. I mean, that was pretty comparable to, say, like one of the uh, cocoons from Gremlins, I would say, if I wanted to compare it to something. So mm-hmm. that was a pretty pretty decent little kind of practical prop there they had. I kept expecting um, that to turn into something. Did it end up did it not end up doing anything? It was just in a jar sitting there floating in the press conference and I was like, yeah. oh, something's about to happen because it's moving in the jar on its own. And I was expecting baddies to come out or something like that. Yeah. It, it was just supposed to be physical proof that there are aliens or something through that dimensional portal. Anyways, it's... Yeah, it was just kind of odd. I don't know what purpose that 
little thing proved or if it was something that would unfold in the second movie i don't know it's hard to say but i i feel like the special effects ran the gambit mary of... what do you think about when uh Bakura banzai goes through sorry when the uh oscillation overthruster takes him through the mountain and he's in this very purple world and stuff's flying around him the do we like the look of this uh you know i i think i liked how random some of it seemed there were like some bodies floating through space and his car is hitting them and i think there's there's some interesting things going on but i think that is one of the things that dates the movie yeah i expected worse though given when this is made if that makes sense sure i'm not a car guy but i thought it was interesting that they started with a ford f-350 pickup truck and reinforced the frame assembly and added the front end from a grand national stock car and then also borrowed air scoops from a DC-3 plane, and then a one-man cockpit modeled after the uh, Manchester Mint fighter plane, and it also includes an actual Cold War-era general electro-turbo jet engine that was borrowed from a Northrop University in Inglewood, California. So this is a fun... The car actually does look like a fun collage of lots of things. It's definitely... I mean, a lot of the themes and character types and there, there's something about this is definitely very yeah cold war vibes coming off of this film for sure i get a mad max vibe off of it too yeah, i can see that yeah well especially in the desert with that you know souped up car soundtrack though tessa you said you liked the soundtrack earlier yeah uh michael uh Boddicker was an oscar winner for the song imagination on the Flashdance soundtrack Boddicker also produced the alien sound effects Buckaroo sings a song to Penny Pretty called Since I Don't Have You. Now, do you all think Peter Weller has some decent singing chops? Or do you think Penny Pretty's attempt at suicide was, you know, actually, like, made sense? It's worth noting that that actually is him singing. Yeah. And he plays some of the guitar, too. Wait, what? He actually plays some of the guitar? He plays the solo and the guitar, as well as the pocket trumpet is also legit him. Now, the piano, yes. not so much. He's faking that. But uh, okay. still, you got to give him some credit for that, actually doing some yeah. of the music. Yeah. I know Peter Weller is mostly Dorian from The Mask. Mm-hmm. And so my first thought was, whoa, Dorian can sing. <laughs> yeah. I really dug the ending musical sequence. I don't know the name of the song at the end that all the gang just, you know, walks around to. Their little little uh, entourage montage <laughs> yeah that's actually one of my favorite scenes for the music is that scene where they're all walking and uh, you know i think the f- the funniest thing about it is when we were re- researching this russell found a little fact that they didn't have the soundtrack ready for when they were going to shoot the scene so they're actually <laughs> walking to billy joel's uptown girl <laughs> and you can find that on YouTube where someone has put that back in there and it's epic and great and they should have gone with that for the movie. It feels like opinion. a Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, like It's very much like Peter Quill like leading his team through the spaceship. And I, I love that moment about I, I kinda wish that, that had just been in the movie. It was so it was so awesome. It was very reminiscent of like when you uh, hear hooked on a feeling <laughs> and like oh, they're all like man. getting in a row like in that v-shaped formation like with buckaroo at the front of the v and i'm like going on like it's like it's kind of yes. fun and, yes. and uptown girl <laughs> does seem to fit their movements more than the actual soundtrack that's in there and, uh-huh. which makes sense because that's what if that's in fact 
real a real fact and not just a rumor <laughs> it would make sense because they're actually walking to the tune of that song but I, I, th- and I thought that that actually hit the nail on the head with what I wanted this movie to be more like. I wanted more personality and more comedy from the side characters. I wanted more of that team in the movie. I think that's, for me, the thing that's missing here. I dug the theme song, though, at the end. Uh, back to Tess's point, though. I've been going around, like, whistling it like that. Yeah, I've been hearing it for the last few days. It doesn't <laughs> stop, and it's actually not in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh it's always fun when you get a new new earworm kind of thing earbug it seems like it's from an old nintendo video game though in, in many ways like i could see like being on the menu of like uh like you know sitting there like you know kind of s- oh that sounds like the peanuts now or um it does uh, yeah charlie charlie brown I've charlie brown is adventures in the eighth dimension <laughs> ah! <laughs> so they took this sort of like 80s synth sound that was really popular at the time i mean movies like blade blade runner did it really in a serious way and it was really effective this movie did it in a very odd way and there were a couple of times i was kind of scratching my head like what are they thinking here what the moment when they break it to the president that aliens are threatening to blow up earth Mm-hmm. You have this sort of light, twinkly, high-pitched keyboard tones that almost seems more like in a like eighties romantic comedy. It's like, oh, news that the she <laughs> news that the world's about to blow up, and it's just like the music. Read the room, right? It was like, wait, what? And so it it kind of brought me back into this campy feeling, and I think that was it had to have been intentional. It couldn't they couldn't have misplaced the soundtrack in that sort of way and it's been an accident. In my opinion, I think it was intentional. Her head visibly went back to during the chase scene where Buckaroo gets on the motorcycle chasing after the truck. Like that's the song that plays in that is also perhaps not to the tone of the scene. And she, like she's like, This is a chase scene? <laughs> It was a very anticlimactic chase scene. He jumps on this motorcycle, loses track uh, of it, and 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 is following this van. He comes through a tunnel, and then he just kind of putters to a stop because he can't find the van. It's <laughs> <laughs> the most anticlimactic chase scene I've ever experienced. <laughs> I kind of loved it though because it, it, I think it, it it's one of those moments where the movie is exactly opposite of what you expected it to be. It's time to go in to look for this, though. Tessa, any fun facts you want to share and look for this? Oh, um, well, I already said the, uh, keep, keep your eyes peeled for the price tag on Penny's gun. Um, <laughs> That's great. I didn't notice that. Yeah, so when I was watching it, another one of those scenes where someone's talking off screen, there's the moment when the helicopter comes by and all you hear is the tiny child's voice. And my first thought was, is that child driving that helicopter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he has an automatic rifle, so why not? (laughs) Um, Let's see. uh, At the beginning, when Dr. Lizardo was leaving the hospital, he breaks a... When you're saying, like, video game noises, uh, he breaks an arcade console. It's a Buckaroo Banzai video game arcade console. Oh, I didn't notice the name on it being Buckaroo Banzai. That's a good find. Yep. Mary, look for this. There's a couple of signs that I've noticed during the movie. There's um, a sign on the door that says, Nobody come. Nobody comes here, and comes is spelled C-U-M-Z. So yeah. I thought that was great. <laughs> 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 it was like one of those 
things where you have to be like actually reading the signage that's in the background. There, uh, the other one is they're trying to they're taking Penny to the pit, and then somebody goes through a door that says pit P I T T. The aliens don't know how to spell. I'm wondering if I watch it again, if I will see even more of those, because I mean, those are definitely intentionally placed for you to see them. They're yeah, they're part of the background, but you're supposed to see them. You know, those red electroids, they they had been trapped in the eighth dimension for a while, and I'm pretty sure the eighth dimension doesn't have the greatest education system. Or they're just bored living in that warehouse. <laughs> uh, for me, the 1984 release of this movie also corresponds with The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension interactive fictional video game, which was released for the Apple II, Atari 8, Commodore 16, Commodore Plus 4, and Commodore 64. And so uh, if you want to go back and play a retro video game, uh, it's out there. I couldn't find any reviews on whether it was good or not, but uh, it does exist. And it's kind of funny that Tessa mentioned that there is a Buckaroo Banzai video game in the movie, too. So there's one in real life as well. So There, there is one more look for this moment that I, I, I think we should point out. There's a scene with John Lithgow and Christopher Lloyd, and they're arguing, and Christopher Lloyd flips him off. And... Mm-hmm. That wasn't, that was totally ad-libbed, and you actually see John Lithgow break, and so he grabs a helmet and puts it in front of his face because he's cracking up, and you, yeah, you can totally see it. Well, after we had, you know, watched the thing where John Lithgow was talking, watching it again, I was like, yeah, you can tell he's totally, he's totally lost it, he's totally broken. John Big Boutet is wearing thin throughout the movie, being bossed around by Dr. Lazardo's character, and uh, or John Warfan. He gets tired of him. He's like, forget having the high horse that he rode in here on, and like, like blows half at him. And so these are moments that Christopher Lloyd injected. None of this stuff was scripted. We would have had a much more boring John Big Boutet without, uh, without Christopher Lloyd manning it. So, Tessa, you ready to hand out some awards with us? Oh, gosh. Awards, I, I guess. Yeah, sure. Why not? Who is the MVP of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension? God, MVP. Probably that little kid. He's He was keeping things locked down. Yeah, he, he kept he, he saved the day at the end. Otherwise, the Secretary of Defense would have made it away with the uh, with the oscillator. That's true. Yeah. He was kind of the hero, wasn't he? Uh, MVP, Mary. I am going to give MVP to John Lithgow because he is the character that I, in 10 years from now, he's going to be the character I remember most. Laugh now while you can, monkey boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to follow suit with Mary and go with John Lithgow. Um, Tessa, who is your best supporting actor? I don't know. I mean, that's going to probably go between the guy who played Rawhide or uh, New Jersey. Jeff Goldblum. I'm probably going to go with Jeff Goldblum just because I love him so much. But, you know, Rawhide was supposed to be like, you know, Buckaroo's kind of like best friend and the person who like talked the most sense and was the stable, like, you know, his kind of his rock, you know. I mean, Perfect Tommy was his right hand man, but Rawhide was his foundation. So it was, it was kind of hard for me to choose between Rawhide and New Jersey. But, um, anyways, I'll probably go with New Jersey just because I like Jeff. Mary. Uh, supporting actor, I'm going to go with Christopher Lloyd on this. I think uh, when I understood from the documentary is just how much humor he injected that wouldn't have been there otherwise. I, you know, I realized just how important he is to the cast. He goes big, too, with his mm-hmm. reactions. Uh, I love how Mary's leaning into the villains <laughs> more. Oh, the villains are great. That's true. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you on this one though, Tess. I'm gonna go with Goldblum on this one. Yeah. So for very much the, for whatever reason, that red cowboy outfit just somehow like that's that's the thing I'm gonna remember from this movie. Does is, something for you? I I just it's burned mm-hmm. in my mind. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. Like if I go watch back and watch Jurassic Park again, I'm gonna be seeing Ian Malcolm with a cowboy hat oh, and on. like the chaps and the, <laughs> but no spurs. <clears throat> no spurs. Where are your spurs? What is it? Is he making a joke? Is that what he's doing? Is it is so appropriate? I just realized that you know Jeff Goldblum is in Guardian. Is he in Guardians too? Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, like that somehow is just so fitting for him. Oh, that is great. Hidden gem, Tessa. Underappreciated cast. Yep. I'm gonna feel like underappreciated by most, but definitely appreciated by Mary's Christopher Lloyd. That's a good one. And Mary, hidden gem. I'm going to go with Vincent Chiavelli, and I, this is actually the second time on a retro movie roundtable I have picked him for my hidden gem. He is a oh. character actor who I have just been a fan of for many years. I probably was first familiar with him in The X-Files from the episode called Fiji Mermaid. He, yes. um On the podcast, when we did 1989 Batman, he is in that movie and is um, really awesome there. I think most people probably know him from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Every time I see him in a movie, he brings something special to the table. And not only do I think he's the hidden gem, I think he's underutilized. And I would have loved to see a lot more of him in this film. He's the guy whose face kind of looks like it's like melting a little bit, like his eyes are droopy. He's very distinct and he's just got such a great delivery and can play such an eccentric character. He's just, he's a niche kind of guy, but he always brings it. Yeah. And for me, I'm going to go with the hidden gem of Matt Clark, who plays the Secretary of Defense. This little guy goes around, like, ordering people about, and, like, it's like, you can't go back there. It's classified. Not to me, it's not. And then just goes, like, <laughs> plowing through people. I like his bossy attitude. Uh, his part of the plot where he's trying to intercept the uh, oscillator overdrive was a little bit murky, but... Uh, all is forgiven because this character is just funny. I also like when he's at the press conference and Tommy mocks him and like he angrily reaches over and unplugs his microphone and like he's like, you know we're talking for you. <laughs> so, recast Tessa. All right. Uh, I guess if I was going to recast or could recast, uh, it'd be interesting to recast Buckaroo Bonsai like we were discussing earlier. Uh, Michael Keaton's interesting, but I, I feel like uh, potentially a the Mummy era Brendan Fraser probably could have done it some justice, mm. or mm-hmm. even maybe Nicolas Cage. Why not? Let's cage it up. Well, wow. those, they, those are really good choices. I had the same thought as you. I, it's not that I don't like Peter Weller, but I feel like there was I wanted something a little bit different. So I kind of had two ways I was going to go with that. One thought I had was to just switch him with Jeff Goldblum. What would it mm-hmm. be like if Jeff Goldblum were Buckaroo? Because, hmm. you know, I, I think that's another thing I would have wanted more in the movie is more of him. Mm-hmm. The other thought I had was, you know, com- when we were comparing this movie to Spaceballs, like it could have gone mm-hmm. a little bit more in that direction. I did think that uh, Bill Pullman could have been a really fun Buckaroo Bonsai. Ooh, yeah, I like that. I actually somehow like the Michael Keaton one a lot, and I rare I usually keep it in the era. But somehow when I was watching this, I couldn't help but think about if we were to remake this, how would we do this now? And uh, 
Simon Pegg comes to my mind for somebody I want to get a hold of Buckaroo Banzai. I like his character in Hot Fuzz. He's really not that big of a dude, but he's playing this awesome, like, super soldier kind of, like, special agent. And I could sign, I, I kind of like the idea of him walking around with this cocky, arrogant attitude of like over the top, like I'm an awesome surgeon, I'm an, I'm a rock star, all the ladies like me, and you know I'm also, you know I, I can see him doing all of this stuff, and somehow the his role in Hot Fuzz put this in my mind, and obviously that gets you the opportunity to put Nick Frost in the movie too yeah, as part yeah. of the Hong Kong cast. I, I think he might be a good recast for Reno and Rawhide, maybe. Or, yeah, or I, I was kind of seeing. I was kind of seeing Nick Frost in that black suit with like the red belt and the yellow belt. <laughs> Somehow that like wardrobe said Nick Frost to me when, we were, when you mentioned that the first time. It's like, oh, but Nick Frost has to come with him too. And I don't think you would touch this with a 10 foot pole, especially at this era because he would have been super famous. But I can't help but think Eddie Murphy would have just made this an entirely different movie. But again, uh, he was a bit of a all over the place man with some musical gifts himself, and I, I actually kind of was sitting there thinking like, what if Eddie Murphy was uh, substituted into Peter Weller's spot if I had to stay within the era? Hmm. As you can tell, I want a funnier movie. So, <laughs> what is your best shot, Tessa? It's probably going to be well. It's probably either the bar scene when they're playing their show or the ending sequence. So one of those two. Those are both pretty good. Mary, best shot. Best shot, you know, I, I think it's kind of iconic of the movie when you see John Lithgow electrocute himself and there's these really clearly drawn on to the film lightning bolts coming off of his head and tongue. Yes. <laughs> and I, I love that. And that to me, that's like, if you have to make one still frame of this movie, I would pick that. Is this as a drug addiction kind of thing for him? I think him? so. Yeah. Okay. I think he's using it as some sort of, he's like getting Release. high off of it, but at the same time, that's, that flashback. triggers his flashback. Uh-huh. I, I, I was thinking the same thing, but I wasn't for sure. It uh, was an unusual apparatus. My best shot's going to go to when Buckaroo Banzai is in the basement chasing after the red electroids. They've taken the, uh, I guess, the professor, uh, I forget his name at the moment, the Asian man, and he emerges from the shadows from a dark run of like shelving. The light hits his face on half of his face in a real pale spotlight. Uh, I think this is definitely one of the Blade Runner moments, so to speak, of mm, uh, yeah. dramatic lighting. And I, I was like, man, that's a pretty good shot for a movie of this nature. I, it, it overachieves in many ways. So I like this one. That's my, that's my best shot of the movie. What is your best scene, Tessa? I mean, I guess we have the, the death of Rawhide. Spoiler alert. Well, we warned them. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Mary... What is your best scene? This well, my uh, my best shot is actually within my best scene. I like the whole sequence where uh, Lithgow is watching the the news story about Buckaroo going right through the mountain with his um, uh, oscillator overdrive with his overdrive system, and then he you know electrocutes himself, and the electrocution turns into the flashback as. You're still hearing the news story going in the background, and then you're seeing like how he became what he is and how he got possessed by the eighth dimension. I, that whole sequence, I love the way it played out and connected together, and yeah, that stands out to me. Uh, my best scene is going to be when the Hong Kong Cavaliers come to the rescue of Buckaroo Banzai. He's being tortured in an electric chair of sorts, and his uh, his team comes after him 
guns a blazing. I liked this. I I would go with a bigger action scene out of this, but I, I liked it. Tess, if you could change one thing, what would it be? Oh dang. Um, well, one thing we could change. I want to know why that watermelon was in that place it was at. <laughs> I want closure. I need it. That's I what the know. sequel was about. <laughs> it was all about that one watermelon. Um, if I could change one thing, probably just like the the oddly chosen like race element scene just train like just just off-putting i guess for today's standards i don't know another thing you could change make it a musical usually <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Any, anytime i'm on a podcast and you're like upcycling if you could change one thing what we do and we always answer make it a musical or make it funnier one of those two things usually mary what about you yeah, I kind of said this earlier. I, I I wanted more humor. I wanted the team to have more personality and bring more fun to the movie. And I'm going to be on a very similar note and just say, I'm going to say steer harder into sarcasm and satire. The bubble wrap goggles, what that prop did, do that and carry that through the acting, carry that through the direction, carry the, let the bubble goggles guide you. Yeah, Russell's over there doing, like, the Italian finger kiss. Be like, mm, bubble goggles. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. It's a nice. Best quote of the movie, Tessa. Oh, gosh. There's so many. And most people pick, you know, the one whenever their band plays and he's talking to Penny. You know, no matter where you go, there you are. But I got to say the one that actually made me giggle and laugh out loud was when he'd gotten some particularly bad news on the phone um, with one of his buddies, one of the Hong Kong Cavaliers, or maybe the president. I can't remember who he's on the phone with. But he goes, oh, the deuce, you say. <laughs> <laughs> like the most like unalarmed, the most unperturbed way, just like the deuce, you say. And I was like, I'm going to start saying that. It sounds very stewy like too, as well, from Family <laughs> yeah, Guy. Yeah. What the deuce? <laughs> yeah. Mary. Uh, Best quote. Uh, I'm going to have to go with why is the watermelon there? I'll tell you later. (laughs) (laughs) Mine's kind of an ensemble line, but so uh, Lord John Morfin says, uh, where are we going? And the red electroids write out, planet 10. And where are we going there? Real soon. Soon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's definitely got a very space, space balls vibe to it. That whole like call and response is that was really, really good. The moment of truth. Are you ready to give this movie a review on a five-star scale? Tessa, what would you rate this movie? Oh, boy. I would I would probably rate it a solid 4.5. Love it. Love it. And Mary, what would you rate this movie? I'm going to go 3.5. Okay. And I'm going to give it a 3.5 as well. Mary, do you want to help me pick a movie for next well, sure, time? Sure, I can pick the next movie okay next time uh we got father's day coming up and your dad likes sports so uh we're gonna do a sports movie option one we've got the sandlot from 1993 in the summer of 1962 a new kid in town is taken under by the wing of a young baseball prodigy of his own rowdy team resulting in many adventures option two miracle from 2004 the true story of herb brooks the player turned coach who led the 1980 u.s olympic hockey team to victory over the seemingly invincible russian squad Option three, The Rookie from 2002. A Texas baseball coach makes the major league after agreeing to try out of his high school team and made the playoffs. Well, those are good picks. I think since we live in a hockey town, I think Miracle is going to be the one we should do. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. And Herb Bricks, the coach that that's about, coached the Pittsburgh Penguins. 
So, oh, fun I fact for like that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. So, Tessa, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was super fun. And uh, it was cool always talking with Mary. So, uh, I had a blast. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It was great to have you. For one last go around in December, what, what, was, what was the date again in December? For the festival, I want to say that is December 5th through 9th. We also do monthly screenings called Orbiters. And uh, badges are for sale for the festival. Um, if anybody wants to get them, getting them earlier, uh, they will be more affordable. We do like early bird tickets. And then as it gets closer to the festival, they get a bit more pricey. But they're, they're pretty reasonably priced given what other festivals are charging people. And then... What else? What else we got? Um, announcements. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to check out our websites, www.otherworldsaustin.com, and they can reach me at outreach at otherworldsaustin.com on my email if they have any questions. Keeping Austin weird. Thanks, Gippy. So to all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, thank you so much. We will invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. And if you want to be on the show, write out to us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Mary? You will remember to wash your hands before you eat anything.